1: Way we go. Episode 540 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, March 31st, 2023, the final day of March, which we have been told comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. Well, the weather in the Washington, D.C. area on Thursday certainly reflected that. A somewhat cool but otherwise nice day for opening day for the 2023 Major League Baseball regular season. Uh, Although, (laughs) then came the actual game at Nationals Park. Uh, Pretty, that game was not a work of art. That game was not a 7 2 loss for the Nationals to the Atlanta Braves on Thursday afternoon. This was a sloppy game. This was an ugly game, uh, certainly from a Nats perspective. The Nats starting pitcher Patrick Corbin lasted for a mere three innings. Uh, the Nats promising young shortstop CJ Abrams went 0 for 4 and committed three errors. Uh, the Nats went 1 for 11. With runners in scoring position and had just one extra base hit, the Nats supposed top reliever Kyle Finnegan struggled. Other than those things, things went swimmingly on Nationals opening day. Hello and welcome to this Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Happy Friday. You have made it to the end of the work week. In addition to the end of the month of March, uh, coming up on the show, I will discuss what took place for the Nats on opening day as well. As what happened with the Orioles on opening day. If you are an O's fan, how about what went down on Thursday afternoon? A wild 10-9 win at the Boston Red Sox in what goes down as the adley Rutschman game. You know, there are promising young players, and then there are phenoms. adley Rutschman is a phenom. Spectacular. 2022 rookie season. And now how about this guy's start to his second major league season? Catcher Adley Rutschman on Thursday afternoon, five for five with a solo homer, four singles and a walk. He became the first player in major league history to go five for five or better with at least four RBI on an opening day. Yeah, the guy made Major League history in the first game of his second Major League season. Not bad. So I'm talking Nats and Does coming up. But before all of that, a special guest to chat about the Commanders. Darren Haynes, sports director for WUSA 9. He did some tremendous work covering the NFL's annual league meeting, which we had in Phoenix, Arizona, Sunday through Wednesday. Uh, Darren spoke with a lot of people. Commanders head coach, Ron Rivera. Commanders team president, Jason Wright. Commanders general manager, Martin Mayhew. Dallas Cowboys owner, president and general manager, Jerry Jones. Indianapolis Colts owner and CEO, Jim Irsay. New England Patriots chairman and CEO, Bob Kraft. NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, And many others. Uh, Darren spoke with a lot of big machers out in the desert, and some of Darren's interactions with people went viral, including (laughs) this interaction with Miami Dolphins head coach and former Redskins offensive assistant Mike McDaniel on Monday morning. So, Mike McDaniel was an offensive assistant for the Skins 2011 through 2013, he was their receivers coach for the 2013 season. Here he was on Monday morning. On the commanders being sold.
2: From my experience just because of my you know three years there um, it it, I I didn't necessarily see that coming Um, but in general people have different reasons to do whatever Um, uh, I'm not gonna pretend to know everything that's going on there I'm just more looking at the fact that wow the organization's worth that much and you know I couldn't get free coffee.
1: Yeah, Mike McDaniel still bitter (laughs) about not getting free coffee during his time with the Skins. Anyway, next segment, Darren Haynes will tell us about his conversations and interactions at the league meeting, as well as his latest intel on the sale of the commanders. Trust me, you don't want to miss that. And believe it or not, we're also going to talk some actual Commanders football, too, uh, including this quarterback competition of Sam Howell versus Jacoby Brissett that head coach Rod Rivera is hyping. How real is this competition going to be? Also on the show, a hit on the Capitals. Uh, another loss for them, an ugly loss, a 5 1 loss at the Tampa Bay Lightning on Thursday night, as any chance that the Caps have. For making the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, continues to fade. Uh, before we get to some feedback, the college basketball coaching carousel continues. George Mason on Thursday morning officially announced the hiring of Tony Skin as Mason head coach. Uh, that would be the same Tony Skin who was a key starter for Mason's 2005-2016 team that made the Final Four. Uh, Tony Skin spent this past season as an assistant for Maryland. He replaces Kim English, who left his job as Mason head coach to become Providence head coach, and English replaced Ed Cooley, who left his job as Providence head coach to become Georgetown head coach. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the Al podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Joel Chorney on something that's Happening this weekend, the Final Four in the NCAA tournament Saturday evening. NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, is the site. Five seeded San Diego State versus nine seeded Florida Atlantic at six oh nine. Followed by four seeded UConn versus five seeded Miami. First Final Four ever without a one seed, a two seed, or a three seed. Right, Joel. How are you feeling about March Madness? I love crazy upsets like Princeton over Purdue as much as an x person but too many upsets really take the juice out of the tournament. I mean, this past weekend, there was one game that I was actually interested in and found compelling, UConn versus Gonzaga, and that turned into a blowout. Was I seriously going to spend a beautiful Sunday afternoon watching San Diego State play Creighton? No chance. What do you say? Are you an upset guy all the way, or is this year way too much of a good thing? Thank you for the email, Joel. Great topic. Uh, The upsets in the NCAA tournament are a ton of fun. The unpredictability of the NCAA tournament, of course, is a big part of what makes it great. But there's no doubt that uh, there is a bill that comes due with these upsets, and it is exactly what Joel talked about. Uh, I'm very interested in what the television ratings for these final four games are because I could see them being bad. I hope not, but I could see that. Uh, The dilemma of upsets versus heavyweight matchups later in NCAA tournaments, that dilemma reminds me of a bit that uh, the GOAT of all comedians, Jerry Seinfeld, did years ago, in which he talks about your night self versus your morning self and how your night self wants to stay up and do things and not worry about the repercussions in the morning. And then your morning self suffers the consequences of the night self and hates the night self. This is like the upsets versus the heavyweight matchups. The upsets in the moment are exciting and at times unforgettable. But then later in the tournament, you get a final four of five-seeded San Diego State versus nine-seeded Florida Atlantic and four-seeded UConn versus five-seeded Miami. The upsets are when you're out drinking and having a grand old time. The later matchups in the NCAA tournament are when you, the next day, have that brutal hangover. So it really is a matter of how much of a hangover that you can tolerate. But, you know, there's another aspect to all of this, and that is these upsets in NCAA tournaments further devalue a college basketball regular season that is struggling. I mean, college basketball really has become a one-month sport, a sport that a lot of people love in March but ignore November through February. Uh, That is a dangerous place to be as a sport. I talk a lot of college basketball on this podcast, but I fully admit that the interest in the sport is a lot lower as compared to the interest in the sport, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Email from Keith Horton on some recent changes in Washington, D.C. sports media. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, writes Keith, Al, big fan of the pod, and keep up the great work. Thank you, Keith, continues Keith. The past few weeks have been jarring, to say the least, in terms of the local sports radio slash media environment. First, it was revealed that NBC Sports Washington and the Commanders are parting ways. Second, major shakeup at 980. With respect to NBC Sports Washington, what will happen to the reporters who cover the commanders and who were responsible for so much good day-to-day content? Why did this happen? This seems awfully short-sighted. The commanders need as much market share as possible moving forward to rebuild the fan base, and not moving forward with a great group of reporters is hard to justify. As for the radio, all of a sudden, it was announced out of nowhere that Pete Methurst is no longer with Chris Russell. There was no warning, no chance for Pete to say goodbye. Was this awfully cruel? No answers or justification other than Russell saying radio is a tough business. And Kevin Sheehan is moving to the 10 a.m. slot with the sports junkies being simulcast on 980. I get that Odyssey owns both stations, but the reasons for these moves are not adding up. On the one hand, 980 says that not as many vehicles are on the road during morning drive anymore, and therefore the best use of Sheehan is 10 to 1. But if that really was the case, why are the junkies still on during morning drive? It seems like 980 is getting the short end of the stick. I know that you have experience in the industry with 980. A lot of us are frustrated. Uh, thank you for the email, Keith. So let's take the topics one by one. Uh, with the divorce of the Commanders and NBC Sports Washington, uh, NBC Sports Washington for years paid the team a lot of money to be a broadcast partner. And when I say a lot of money, my understanding is that the amount was in the millions of dollars per year. Well, Monumental Sports and Entertainment this past September announced the completion of a purchase of full ownership of NBC Sports Washington. Uh, Monumental in 2016 had bought 33% of NBC Sports Washington. Monumental now owns 100% of NBC Sports Washington. Uh, Monumental Sports and Entertainment, of course, is run by Ted Leonsis, and Monumental Sports and Entertainment owns the Capitals and the Wizards, among other things. Uh, Monumental has very little interest in paying millions of dollars per year to a team in the Commanders that Monumental does not own in order to have a lot of Commanders programming when Monumental, at least in its mind, is better served by having more Capitals and Wizards programming and not promoting another pro sports team in town. So that's what the divorce of the Commanders and NBC Sports Washington is about. But I am totally with Keith. I mean, the NBC Sports Washington guys who cover the Commanders, J.P. Finley, Pete Haley, Mitch Tischler, all really good guys, all guys who are really good at what they do. I've had all three guys on this podcast multiple times. Uh, I do think that NBC Sports Washington getting away from commanders programming is going to hurt the station's ratings because, you know, as much as interest in the football team has fallen over the last 15 years, there still is more interest in that team than there is in the Capitals or the Wizards, especially the Wizards. You know, The Caps are, for the most part, a well-run team with a very passionate fan base that's limited only by the sport of hockey, only having so many fans in this country. The Wizards are another story. There is a lot of anger at and disinterest in the Wizards right now. Uh, They, to me, are the area team that should be most worried about a dwindling fan base, uh, not the Commanders'. As for my former employer, the team, 980, uh, well, its owner, Odyssey, which is uh, the station's third different owner <laughs> since 2018, has no interest in making 980 great again. The reason that Odyssey keeps 980 around is so that another company doesn't try to start a big-time sports talk radio station in the Washington, D.C. area. There now are multiple other sports talk radio stations in the area beyond 980 and 1067, the fan, but those other stations are run with tight budgets and without any real designs of challenging 1067. So Odyssey keeps 980 around just to keep it around and maybe turn a small profit, but there is zero desire to make 980 great again trust me on this okay what 980 would need to be great again is a total overhaul a complete rebuild and that has not happened since odyssey bought 980 in late 2020 uh the station now is down to three full-time hosts that's it a top 10 media market sports talk radio station has three full-time hosts and has completely given up on the most lucrative day part in radio morning drive and look I don't blame odyssey for its plan with 980. The plan makes sense from Odyssey's perspective. I just find what has happened to 980 to be really sad. I was with 980 for 23 years. I started as a promotions intern on Memorial Day weekend 1998 was with the station until January 2021. I have spent more than half of my life <laughs> at 980. So I hate seeing what 980 has become, but this is what it has become. I don't expect that to change anytime soon, if ever. And so that is sort of the thing that governs everything that you see happening with 980 right now. By the way, I do find it really funny too, whenever 1067 promotes 980. Because 106.7 for years did all that it could to tell you how terrible 980 was. (laughs) You know, the signal is terrible. The shows are terrible. The hosts are terrible. And now it's, oh, hey, check out the Wizards game on 980 tonight. Yeah, you know, it's like, (laughs) okay. I mean, when you tell people for years how bad something is and then all of a sudden try to promote it, people don't buy the promoting of it. And look, I get that the trashing of 980, that's what goes down in a ratings war. I I totally get that. But it's just funny to me now that 106.7 tries to pump up 980 to whatever degree that that happens. And it's like, for years you told everyone how awful it is, and now you're trying to sell people on the station. But anyway, uh, that's where we are with uh, 980, and that's where we are with radio. Radio is cable TV. Podcasts are streaming streaming. Uh, radio and cable TV, they're not going entirely away, but podcasts and streaming are where the business is going, and in a lot of ways, already is. Well, if where you are is having been harmed by the negligence of someone else, always know that the law firm of Polson and Nace is there for you. If you have a case, contact Polson and Nace. Paulson and NACE is dedicated to promoting the rights of seriously injured persons and their families. You can call Paulson and NACE at 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and NACE that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and NACE handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Colson and Nace is widely respected throughout Washington, D.C., and West Virginia for the firm's accomplishments both in and out of courtrooms. Chris Nace and Matt Nace are dedicated trial attorneys who do not balk. In the face of large insurance companies or well-known businesses that have had practices or products that are directly related to the root of your harm, Polson and NACE does not accept low settlement offers that benefit the people who cause clients harm more than the offers benefit the clients. And this is because Polson and NACE is not afraid to take a case to trial, and that's because Polson and NACE wins trials. Paulson and NACE has secured millions of dollars in verdict and settlement amounts for clients to better enable them to care for themselves and their families. If you have a case, contact Paulson and NACE. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and NACE and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. Call Paulson and NACE at 202 902 7611 that's 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent ya. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit Paulsonandnace.com. That's Paulsonandnace.com. Just make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Well, as the saga that is the sale of the commanders continues, I'm pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast. For the first time, Darren Haynes, sports director for WUSA 9. Darren this week was at The NFL's annual league meeting, which took place at the Biltmore in Phoenix, Arizona, Sunday through Wednesday. And he spoke to a lot of people. And so we're going to talk about both the sale of the Commanders uh, and about some actual football stuff with the Commanders. Imagine that. Uh, Darren used to work for ESPN. You can follow Darren on Twitter at Darren M. Haynes.
3: Darren, very nice to talk to you. How are you? Hey, I'm happy to be on here, my man. Um, Yeah, a lot of of exciting, a lot of drama. Um, Also, you know. It's normal Washington Commanders. Uh, it's a normal com- Washington Commanders day. Just the ups and downs of what that franchise goes through.
1: No doubt. Well, you yourself were uh, at the center of some of the drama with your activity this week. Uh, let's start with the sale of the Commanders. In your conversations and interactions with people at the league meeting did you learn anything or come to think anything different about the sale or is what you knew and thought about the sale before the meeting more or less what you know and think about the sale now?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think it was a little bit of like I knew the sale was going to happen or the sale is going to happen. Um, It was just a matter of timing where it didn't Fit perfectly with the the NFL owners meetings in in, in Phoenix, Arizona um, A lot of the Washington fans hoped it would um, but obviously, you know, if anybody who sells a house or a car, you, you know it, You know the sale may not go exactly when you want it to go um, and, and it takes time but I learned what I've learned a lot was was that, you know, at first the owners especially like during the the NFL owners meetings in New York in October uh, you know, you have a guy like uh, Colts owner, Jim Irsay, who was very outspoken about Dan Snyder, uh, in regards to removing him from ownership. Uh, um, and then they kind of seem to scale it back a little bit in, in Dallas and they're talking about waiting for the Mary Jo White report to come out. Uh, that's the investigation of Dan Snyder, uh, and, and like, uh, allegations of financial proprieties, uh, there's, there's some sexual harassment allegations in there as well. Just all part of that, that commander's toxic culture. It seems that something obviously changed for Dan Snyder to, to sell the team. And a lot of the owners are now sort of waiting for either that report to come out um, or the sale to happen. And so, there, so everything was pretty normal knowing that this sale is going to go through. And a lot of the sources that I talked to, are really close sources to Dan Snyder, that the sale is, is going to happen and he's selling 100% of it. Well, that's obviously significant. So you have it on good authority
1: that Dan Snyder is selling the entirety of his ownership of the team. We should put to rest any concerns that uh, he ultimately won't sell majority ownership.
3: As of Sunday, this past Sunday, unless some things have have changed uh, 100%. All right. That's what
1: we want to hear. Uh, You mentioned the Mary Jo White investigation. You on Tuesday evening (laughs) were right in the middle of the Jerry Jones, Roger Goodell thing. You were among those speaking with Dallas Cowboys owner, president and general manager Jerry Jones when he said regarding the Mary Jo White investigation, quote, I know everything in the report and, quote, and that it was you who asked NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell in his press conference about what Jerry said. And Roger said that it would be impossible for Jerry to know what's in the report. Uh, obviously, somebody is off
3: here. What'd you make of all of that? Well, first, well, let's let's kind of, I'm going to kind of bring you through the chain of events. You know, we're interviewing Jerry Jones, Cowboys owner. And, and I and I ask, you know, if it's do you support the Mary Jo White report being released no matter if Dan Snyder's the owner or not? And he says yes and he gave me like almost this death stare <laughs> but it was more like a, a pause. Um, and then obviously we asked why and like you said that he says he know because he, he knows everything in the report and then they, they kind of shut down the the interview right then and there and it was I was like did he really just say that? that he knew everything in the report. And so my first thing was if he says he knows everything in the report, I need to go to Roger Goodell um, because if he knows everything in the report, that means Roger Goodell may, may know something or some of the other owners may know something. But how does Jerry Jones know? what's? In the, how did, why would he say he knows what's in the report when the report hasn't been released yet? And I mean, I, Roger Goodell, he, he he was like he it's in, I think he said it was impossible. I think that's the word he used. That's impossible. Because, uh, you know, Mary Jo White's doing the investigation and not sharing it with anybody. But clearly, when one person says he knows what's in the report, and then another guy who's the commissioner of the NFL says it's impossible for him to know it, somebody's not telling the truth.
1: Absolutely. Makes you wonder about the integrity of the investigation.
3: Yeah, I, listen, I can't. I, obviously you know i go based off my my facts and sources things that i that i know but you know where the smoke is fire and and i kind of sometimes have this feeling and this is not obviously factual evidence this is just the way i feel i feel like some of the owners know different stuff that's in the report and they basically probably had that conversation with dan saying hey look let's let's do this. You know what? Let, let's do this in a peaceful way. Let's not try to vote you out where it totally makes you look bad and kick you out. Why don't you sell the team? So everybody's kind of happy on their Uh, and it's, it's almost like you don't fire somebody, but you have that, that press release that says we mutually agree to, pr- uh, yeah. to part ways. Yeah. Uh, kind, kind of one, kind of one of those, uh, one of those things. And let's go back to the owners meeting. Uh, this most recent one with Colts owner, Jim Irsay, where he was mentioning, um, that he would like to avoid getting to a point where you have to vote, I mean, vote Dan Snyder out. Like he hopes he doesn't get to that point. Let's hope that he he, sell, he sells the team. Um, so you kind of get a little bit of that, that smoke that's coming from that fire in regards to, to maybe how these owners really feel and, and what's really going down in regards to why Dan Snyder is selling and why the owners are not voting him out.
1: We're talking commanders with Darren Haynes, sports director for WUSA 9. Representing the commanders at the league meeting was co-owner and co-CEO Tanya Snyder, but not the team's other co-owner and co-CEO Dan Snyder. Not the first time that Tanya has represented the team at a league meeting as opposed to Dan. Was Dan not being at the league meeting significant in your opinion or not really?
3: No, because he, he wasn't at the, the owners meetings in New York. He wasn't in, in the one in Dallas either. Um, and and i think you know part of what roger goodell uh said i can't remember what meaning it was was kind of like dan snyder's not really part of the day-to-day operations of the washington commanders um which is weird because dan snyder doing his testimony to congress uh there was some part in his testimony that he was saying he was doing day-to-day work uh with the commanders when he wasn't supposed to um but uh but it doesn't it doesn't surprise me i and I feel bad for Tanya, man. It's, cause, you know, she's done some amazing work, especially with, uh, you know, cancer and stuff like that in the DC area. Oh, not even DC area, just, uh, the United States. Um, and you see her leave the meetings and it, I like, you might as well, like, you might as well call her, uh, like a running back just busting through a hole and <laughs> the door to, try to, to try to avoid the, the cameras. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, and it's really, you know, I don't know everything about Tanya, but it's obviously it's Dan Snyder, her husband in the news. So you kind of feel bad for her that she has to go through the scrutiny because of what her husband's doing. But, um, but yeah, she is the one person when she leaves those meetings, uh, there are a couple of people, maybe one, maybe two, sometimes three around her. And it's almost like they kind of, Like a lunar eclipse, like or or more like a solar eclipse, like blocking her from the cameras as they just totally exit quickly out of the uh, the meetings into another area. Um, But that's that's an example of where things are at with the Snyder family. That's funny, but you
1: know the video that was on social media of Tanya Snyder at the league meeting aligns with exactly what you said. Uh, Did you at the league meeting talk to Team President Jason Wright?
3: Yeah, yeah, I did. I I, I had to sit down one on one with Jason. Okay, what jumped out at you
1: from your discussion with him?
3: Uh well, we we mostly sh- spoke about the stadium stuff. We didn't necessarily get into new ownership. I kind of had my own information already about that. Um, that I didn't really need any more information from him. And the only thing I did get from him in, in regards to ownership wise was that, um, you know, how it was the transition of ownership affecting the, him trying to build a new stadium, and he says things are still moving. But the the interesting thing that they have to go through is they want to go in a certain direction in regards to how they want to build their stadium, what it looks like, where it's going to be. But at the same time, you have this new owner who could come in, and how do you how do you balance maybe what the new owner wants compared to maybe what Dan and uh tanya wanted Mm -hmm. um it could be a totally different direction this you know i'm making this up josh harris harris can come in and say nope i don't want it in maryland anymore the rfk site i hate it because i'm allergic to the pollen out i'm making this up let's put it in virginia yeah when maybe dan snyder was like let's get this at the rfk site so so that's one of the things that he was mentioning was really trying to balance the wants and needs from one owner and then trying to balance the wants and needs of who the new owner could be.
1: Jason Wright very much believes that Dan Snyder is selling the entirety of his ownership of the team. Is that accurate? Yes, yes. Wonderful. (laughs) Love hearing that. Uh, In terms of the contenders to buy the Commanders, uh, the thinking for weeks, of course, has been that the group being led by Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner, Josh Harris, is the favorite to buy the Commanders. Is that how you're viewing this?
3: I Would say yes, um, you know, I was I was able to confirm that the the two the two bidders. Um, I would I would say yes because it seems like Josh Harris and and, and mitchell rails and his group of course with magic johnson and stuff like that There's some other people that are involved uh, in that as well Um, They seem more well organized and they seem they have they have the cash uh to do so Um, and and I think you know from the the the, the Canadian billionaire, um, what is it, Steve uh, Apolopolis? Yeah, close um, close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to you have to say it with confidence. Yeah. With confidence. It sounds like you're saying you're right. Uh, it right. He kind of it, it's you know it came out of nowhere two hours right after the Josh Harris news came out. Um, but I feel like Josh Harris's group and the people that I've spoken to that have direct conversations with josh harris it seems like they have their stuff in order they are ready to go when dan snyder wants them to let them go when i uh, went if dan snyder chooses to allow them to purchase the team i'm sure dan snyder probably wants some competition though i mean who wouldn't when you want to sell something you know get the most money uh that you possibly can uh but yeah josh josh harris and his group the josh harris and mitchell rails group i i feel like they're the front runner because of their way they're organized
1: Last one on the sale and you brought up the competition there in recent days has been a lot out there about the various bidders for the commanders. But what remains unclear is the extent to which Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is a factor in the bidding as it does appear as if this sale process is winding down. What do you think is Bezos a factor or isn't he?
3: So what I've learned, and I've learned a lot covering an investigation. And actually I can be a lawyer now. <laughs> uh, and and covering this sale, all stuff outside of the X's and O's of just normal football. Um, what I've learned was when you have big sales like this, there are so many different factors, and there's so many things that could affect the possible sale happening. Like you don't want to jeopardize the sale, so you want to keep a lot of things on the uh, on the low. You don't want to put a lot of information out there, so. I will say that you know we have not heard anything in regards to Bezos and placing a bid. Um I mean there's different reports saying, you know, Dan I guess is open to Jeff Bezos placing a bid. It wouldn't surprise me if these convers if, if that did if that did happen meaning like I'm sure there's probably more talks and conversations than we know right now. They're just keeping it on the low because this is a very delicate process um so I want to count Jeff Jeff Bezos out just yet even though we haven't heard him place to bid yet because obviously he has the cash to do so and he can do it at twelve o'clock today.
1: All right. To some actual Commanders football talk, Uh, both General Manager Martin Mayhew in his session with reporters on Monday afternoon at the league meeting and head coach Ron Rivera in his session with reporters on Tuesday morning at the league meeting made it quite clear that the team is not pursuing Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson and is all in on this quarterback approach. Uh, Sam Howell and Jacoby Brissett. You were at both of these sessions. Ron said a lot of nice things about Sam, but also very much talked up a quarterback competition. How real do you think the competition will be? Do you think that this will be a legitimate, true, good faith quarterback competition? Or will this be more along the lines of the Dwayne Haskins-Kyle Allen competition in 2020 and the Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke competition in 2021. Neither competition, of course, was a legitimate quarterback competition.
3: Yeah, so so I think I think there will truly be a competition, but of course, just like any quarterback in this league, and especially in the last few years, there will be a favoritism towards another quarterback. Um, if you look at the Dwayne Haskins, the favoritism was. Was towards Dwayne Haskins, and that year Ron knew that he didn't really have a competition when he should when he should have had one. Uh, but when Ryan Fitzpatrick came in, it was his keys, man. It like there was no matter how bad he did. I mean, obviously, if he really sucked, it would have been a little bit different. But um, but it was there's a lot of politics in this, and this is something that I even spoke to Taylor Heineke about, and you know, he was just like, you know, it it is it is what it is. It's politics. You can say there's a competition, it, but the guy you bring in, you pay a lot of money too. He's going to be the guy unless he does something totally crazy on why he shouldn't be. This one's a little bit different because you're bringing in a new guy like Jacoby Brissett. Uh, he still has to learn the offense. He's only here for a certain period of time. And, and Sam Howell, who, man, I like these, Ron Rivera, Mark May, you might as well call Sam Howell like a superstar because they are in love with him. <laughs> Um, And you wonder like when did you fall in love with him because we needed a quarterback when Carson Wentz was struggling and went down Even though we know what Taylor Heineke can bring to the table Um, So I think there will be a legitimate competition more of a competition Than any other year Ron Rivera has been here Um, But there will still be that politics side that 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 favoritism in the quarterback that can that can give them the longer that has more life you should say Sam Howe on his rookie deal, his future is longer in Washington than Jacoby Percet.
1: Something else that stood out from Ron Rivera's and Martin Mayhew's sessions with you guys at the league meeting was this continued public expression of uncertainty regarding whether the team is going to exercise the fifth-year option in the rookie contract of edge defender Chase Young. Uh, Now, Ron denied that the team being so public about the uncertainty is an attempt to motivate Chase, but This whole thing to me is odd. The team being so open about its uncertainty, which personally, I'm not buying. I have a hard time believing that the team two and a half months into its offseason doesn't know if it wants to exercise that option. What do you think is going on here?
3: Uh, I really don't have a feeling in regards to why they're being open with it because they've been so inconsistent. Some stuff they just don't share, then some stuff they do share, which is really weird. But what I do know is, let's just be realistic, man. Chase Young had a hell of a year, and and we really, and, and obviously this is not his fault. I mean, he obviously struggled a little bit the second year, then he got hurt, and then we really didn't see him play that much last year. I think anybody, it's a, it's a no-brainer where you don't know really what you're going to get out of Chase Young in a full season, and you don't want to invest in something with big-time money when you know that the Chase Young that we 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 wanted and loved to see was just in 2020, and we won't ever get that version back again, so I think you know the the Commanders, Ron Rivera, you at a place where they would like to have Chase Young back, but they just don't know if Chase Young is back. Um, you get what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then if it comes to like let's let's look into like even trading him, right? It's the same. It's the same deal that other teams are probably wondering, like okay, yeah, Chase Young is a great player. If we knew he was going to play like the 2020 Chase Young, oh yeah, let's make this trade. But it, it's, I think everything is just sitting on what is Chase Young going to do in his, in his last uh, this year coming up, and then they can make moves. I don't think anything's going to happen this summer with Chase Young. I'll be surprised if that happens.
1: Great intel from Darren Haynes, sports director for WUSA 9. He at the NFL's annual league meeting this week. Was everywhere. Uh, Darren, I appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend. Hi, right, Anytime, my oh man. Thank you for having me. All right. Hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Darren Haynes. If you have like 20 seconds, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review doesn't have to be long, it can be just a sentence or two, but the ratings and the reviews help out the podcast a lot. So thank you very much for doing them.
3: Well, the Nationals at least had a
1: nice crowd on opening day, uh, announced attendance at Nationals Park of 35,756. Uh, not bad considering the expectations for the Nats in this 2023 season. And Thursday was a pretty good day weather-wise in the Washington, D.C. area, so we did have that, but we also had an ugly Nats loss to begin their 2023 regular season. The kind of loss that seems to be the kind of loss that uh, we'll be seeing a lot of uh, from the Nats this season. A 7-2 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on Thursday afternoon in Game 1 of a three-game series. Uh, Patrick Corbin, the man who quantifiably has been the worst starting pitcher in the majors over the last two seasons, uh, he was the Nets' opening day starter, and he lasted for a grand total of three innings. Uh, Corbin allowed four runs, two earned in three innings. He gave up seven hits, a double, and six singles. He issued three walks and a wild pitch. He recorded three strikeouts. He, over his three innings, threw a whopping 85 pitches And of the 85 pitches, just 48 were strikes, 37 balls in that mix. Uh, You know, he didn't get hit all that hard, and the defense behind him at times was lacking, but Corbin lasted for just the three innings, and he, over those mere three innings, needed to throw 85 pitches, just 48 of which were strikes. Uh, You know, the time of the game ended up being three hours, eight minutes, despite the pitch clock. Even the pitch clock was no match for Patrick Corbin. Uh, here was Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Thursday afternoon on Patrick Corbin, and then you'll hear multiple follow-up exchanges.
5: He's, he's got a pound in the strike zone. You know, we talked about that. He did a good job of that in spring. Um, he fell behind. You know, he fell behind. He had a lot of pitches in three innings. So, um, but, you know, he's three, two, three, two, you know, got unfortunate breaks with some of the hits they, they got, you know, early, but it's um, still an He's got to attack the strike zone. He did have a strong end
6: to the spring. So what was the difference today? Do
5: you think? Yeah, he just fell behind. He just fell behind. So you know, when, when he's ahead, it, it's a much different. He's a much different guy. So um, we got to get him ahead and, and get him to finish. You know, we talk a lot about you know three or four pitches or less. Um, that's who he is. Talk about sliders. Sliders just seemed like it was a little bit low. Is there a reason why? Just just overthrowing him. Mean, he threw some. He threw some good ones as well. But you know, for the most part, the ones that were low was just um, just try to overthrow it.
1: Well, we on Monday's show, episode 536, talked about the Nats' decision to go with Patrick Corbin as their opening day starter for a second consecutive season, despite him having been quite bad in each of the last three seasons, including extremely bad in each of the last two seasons. I did not agree with the decision about that Josiah Gray should have gotten the start. There's no guarantee that Gray would have done well on Thursday afternoon. And, you know, ultimately, it's not that big of a deal who the Nats opening day starter was. But Corbin was not good. He has not been good since the Nats 2019 World Series Championship season. And, you know, when the Nats are good again, and that day will come, but when the Nats are good again, whatever that is, uh, them going with Patrick Corbin as their opening day starter in each of two consecutive seasons off two terrible seasons, is going to be looked at as, hey, remember when, you know, remember those dark days? Because, yeah, I mean, that is part of the dark days. And make no mistake, these are the dark days for the Nats right now. Uh, I mentioned the Nats defense. Uh, The Nats on Thursday afternoon committed three errors, all of which were by the same guy C.J. Abrams. Uh, C.J. Abrams is a very well-regarded young player. He was acquired from the San Diego Padres last August 2nd as part of the trade package for outfielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell. And what stood out the most from Abrams during his time with the Nats last season in terms of positives was his defense. Well, his uh, defense on Thursday afternoon was a problem. Abrams was an Nats starting shortstop and number nine batter. He went 0 for 4, and committed three errors. Uh, Abrams, in a Braves three-run second, committed a crucial fielding error. Patrick Corbin, on a one-out, one-two pitch, did do his job. He induced a Taylor Bay double-play grounder off the bat of Ronald Acuna Jr., but Abrams botched his fielding of the grounder while ranging to his left for a fielding error to load the bases. Abrams, in the top of the fifth, committed a two-out throwing error on a grounder by Orlando Arcia as Abrams, off-ranging to his left, made a high throw, and then Abrams, in a Braves three-run ninth, committed a two-out run-scoring throwing error as he made a terrible throw to third base on a relay throw, scoring Travis Darno for a 7-2 Braves lead. Here was Davey Martinez during his post-game press conference on Thursday afternoon on C.J. Abrams' a rather rough day in the field.
5: He, he works hard. He understands the game. You know, he'll, he'll put that aside him, and um and like I said, you know, he'll, he'll be talked to. We, I talked to him already. Um, but we'll talk, you know, we'll keep working with him, keep talking to him. He's, just got, he's got to under, understand situations. You know, he's got to understand that the game is fast, right? The game is fast here. He's got to know who's running. He's got to know anticipate that he's going to get the ball and where he's going to throw it right away. So um, and this is something a young kid needs to work on and be consistent with. It.
1: Yeah, I am bullish on the Nats' defense this season. I actually think that the Nats have a chance to be a good defensive team, and Abrams is one of those reasons, but Thursday, clearly a bad day for Abrams in the field. Uh, Thursday also was a bad day for the Nats' hitting. Uh, The Nats scored just two runs, went just one for 11 with runners in scoring position, had eight hits, but seven of them were singles, a double and seven singles, and the nature of the hits, uh, not exactly imposing. Uh, Lane Thomas was the ad starting right fielder and number one batter. He went one for five with the single, and the single was as follows. Bottom of the first, a leadoff first pitch single on a pop-up to shallow center field that landed between second baseman Ozzie Albies and center fielder Michael Harris the second. There appeared to be a miscommunication between Albies and Harris. Uh, Dominic Smith, he was an Nats starting first baseman at number four batter, two for three with two singles and a walk, but his two singles were infield singles, including this one run second for the Nats. Dominic Smith had a leadoff single on an infield fly ball that shortstop Orlando Arcia lost in the sun and landed on the infield dirt. Uh, the guy who looked the best at the plate with the Nats to me was Cape Ruiz. Uh, he was the Nats' starting catcher and number five batter, two for four with a double and a single. Ruiz in the Nats' one-run second, a first-pitch double down the third baseline, and Ruiz in the bottom of the fourth, a one-out single, to the shallow left field grass. Uh, Joey Manessis, he was an ad starting DH, and number two batter, two for five, with an RBI single, and another single. Uh, Manessis in the bottom of the third, a two-out single to center field. Manessis in the Nats, one-run fifth, a two-out RBI single to shallow center field to cut the Nats' deficit. To 4 2. Also, Victor Robles got on base three times. Uh, He was the Nats starting center fielder and number eight batter, one for two with a single and two walks. Yes, Victor Robles had a decent offensive game. Robles in the Nats one run fifth, a leadoff single on a grounder to left center field. And then Robles in the bottom of the seventh, a leadoff walk. And Robles in the bottom of the ninth, a leadoff walk. Uh, The Nats bullpen on Thursday afternoon did a good job of keeping the game close until. Their supposed best reliever, Kyle Finnegan, came into the game. So the bullpen was leaned on a lot due to Patrick Corbin lasting for just his three innings. But the Nats' first three relievers in the game combined for five scoreless innings. Erasmo uh, Ramirez officially tossed two scoreless innings despite giving up two singles and a walk. He did allow an inherited runner to score, but again, officially two scoreless innings. Uh, Mason Thompson looked really good, two scoreless innings with three strikeouts. And Hunter Harvey tossed a scoreless top of the eighth. So Ramirez, Thompson, Harvey combined for five shutout innings. And then Kyle Finnegan came into the game. And, you know, we are learning with Kyle Finnegan when he's good, he can be great. But when he's bad, he can be really bad. And he was bad on Thursday afternoon. Uh, Finnegan in the top of the ninth gave up three runs, two earned on back-to-back one-out walks, then a one-out two-run double by Travis Darnot to the left center field gap, and then a one-out run scoring throwing error by C.J. Abrams. But Finnegan in the inning, 23 pitches, just 13 strikes versus 10 balls. Uh, He was off. Uh, The Nats on Thursday morning announced their opening day roster. No big surprises. Uh, The team also announced having placed a bunch of players on injured lists. Among those players, starting pitcher Steven Strasburg. Uh, He was placed on the 60-day injured list uh, due to his continued recovery from thoracic outlet syndrome, uh, for which he underwent surgery all the way back on July 8th, 2021. Here we are, late March 2023, and Strasburg still is recovering from this thing. Uh, I said it at the time, thoracic outlet syndrome is a career killer for pitchers, and it does appear to have killed the career of Steven Strasburg. Uh, I mean, this is a really sad story. Uh, As you may recall, Davey Martinez in a press conference on February 15th, what was the day of the first workout for pitchers and catchers at 2023 National Spring Training in West Palm Beach, Florida, revealed that Strasburg had been shut down due to a recurrence of nerve pain. The recurrence happened off just a second bullpen session. I mean, the guy can't even throw. Uh, He right now is not doing anything baseball-wise. That's president of baseball operations. And general manager Mike Rizzo spoke with reporters on Thursday morning, said that Strasburg is just resting until he regains strength and mobility. Also said that Strasburg was not at Nationals Park on Thursday due to not wanting to be a distraction. Uh, You know, I don't know. I don't think that him being there would have been a distraction. I wonder if he wanted to be there. Not because Strasburg is a bad teammate, but just because, you know, it may be like depressing for him to be there knowing that his body is failing him like this. Uh, I do think that Strasburg is done. Again, it is sad, but I don't know how you have any optimism with him at this point. He can't stay healthy. You know, the body just is not responding well uh, to where it is at. Uh, this season would be Strasburg's age 34 season and just the fourth season of the contract. Uh, that seven-year, two hundred forty-five million-dollar contract to which he was re-signed in December two thousand nineteen. Yeah, we are only three years into that seven-year, two hundred forty-five million-dollar contract. So I would think that this season is it. Uh, either Strasburg makes real progress, or he retires, and he and the Nats reach uh, some sort of buyout. With the contract. Uh, I just don't know how you can keep doing this. You know, season after season, him trying and failing to stay healthy, the Nats paying him all of this money not to pitch. I mean, this just is not working. Strasburg, since signing that contract, has made a total of eight regular season starts. I mean, think about that eight regular season starts over the last three seasons. Uh, also being placed on injured lists by the Nats. On Thursday morning, uh, starter Cade Cavalli on the 60-day injured list due to Tommy John surgery that he underwent earlier this month. Reliever Tanner Rainey on the 60-day injured list due to Tommy John surgery that he underwent last August 3rd. Reliever Victor Arano on the 60-day injured list due to a right shoulder strain. Third baseman Carter Keboom on the 10-day injured list due to a right shoulder impingement and catcher Israel Pineda on the 10-day injured list due to a right finger fracture. Next up for the Nats is the traditional off day of the home opener. So game two against the Braves, Saturday afternoon at 4.05. Josiah Gray will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And game three against the Braves, Sunday afternoon at 1.35. Mackenzie Gore will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Well, the Nationals' offense may have struggled on opening day, but the Orioles' offense did not struggle on opening day. Uh, Their pitching struggled, their defense had problems, but the Orioles' offense did not have problems. A 10-9 slugfest of a regular season opening win at the Boston Red Sox on Thursday afternoon in Game 1 of a three-game series as the O's, for the first time this regular season, were in the win column. Joe Angel, give it to me. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column. Hello, Joe. Happy 2023 season. Uh, the O's on Thursday afternoon, 10 runs, 15 hits, 9 walks, 5 for 14 with runners in scoring position, 5 for 5 on stolen bases. A tremendous offensive display, and no Orioles was greater than Adley Rutschman. Adley Rutschman on Thursday afternoon had maybe the single greatest opening day performance in Orioles history. Heck, this may have been the best opening day performance in baseball history. And no, I am not exaggerating in saying that. Rutschman, as the Orioles starting catcher at number two batter, went five for five with a solo homer, four singles, and a walk. So he got on base in all six of his plate appearances. Rutschman became the first player in Major League history to go five for five or better with at least four RBI on an opening day. First player ever. Uh, Rutschman in an Orioles one-run first smashed a one-out solo homer to right field of Red Sox starter Corey Kluber, who the O's, by the way, tattooed to the tune of five runs in 3 into 3rd innings. Rutschman at 25 years and 52 days old became the youngest Oriole to homer on an opening day since Adam Jones in April 2010. What a job by Adley Rutschman. On Thursday afternoon, this was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his post-game session with reporters on Thursday evening
6: on Rutchman. it's one not that great, caught outstanding. Um, gave us an early boost, Homer there, uh, you know, right away in the first inning. Uh, and not just him. Uh, I thought we were showing that we had really good at bats the entire game, and been really happy with our offense today. Uh, bunch of walks and soul bases and showed you the kind of offense we could be.
1: No doubt. The O's took Adley Rutschman with the number one pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of Oregon State. Uh, the O's last May 21st selected the contract of Adley Rutschman from AAA Norfolk. So he last season did not make his major league regular season debut until late May. And yet he for the 2022 regular season was number one on the O's and wins above replacement per baseball reference at 5.2. The guy is a phenom. He is very much living up to the hype. You could actually argue he is exceeding the hype. Uh, we, during Brandon Hyde's post-game session with reporters on Thursday evening, had this exchange with O's insider Dan Connolly of The Athletic.
6: Back to Adler for a second. No Oriole, going back to 1954, has had an opening day like he had. Um, never, you know, Six times on base, five hits. How cool is that given the history? If you do anything historical for the Baltimore Orioles, it's uh, been a lot of great players that have played, uh, you know, wore this, this uniform. And, and uh, it's not going to be the only time you're going to say that about Ali. He's going to be doing other things that are going to be first as well because he's just a super special player, uh, really good hitter. And he's hasn't even played a full year yet. So, um, you know, good things coming.
1: Yes, they are. Uh, some other offensive heroes for the O's on Thursday afternoon. And there were a lot of offensive heroes for the O's in this game. Ramona uh, he was the Orioles starting third baseman and number six batter. He went two for four with a two run homer and a single. Adam Frazier, uh, he and his Orioles regular season debut was a team starting second baseman and number eight batter, two for four with two doubles, a walk. And a stolen base. The O's in their first regular season game with uh, MLB's new bigger bases, five for five on stolen bases. Uh, center fielder Cedric Mullins and shortstop Jorge Mateo each went two for two on stolen bases. Uh, Mateo and Mullins for the 2022 regular season finished 1-2 in the American League in stolen bases. In case you don't know, yeah, the size of bases in Major League Baseball has been increased from 15 inches to 18 inches, and uh, the O's, at least on Thursday afternoon, were running like crazy. Uh, here was Brandon Hyde during his post game session with reporters on Thursday evening on the Orioles running game, and then you'll hear a follow up exchange with O's insider Rich Dubroff of BaltimoreBaseball.com.
6: Well, when we have an opportunity to run, we're going to run. Um, we, have, we have some guys that can run, and so. Uh, we got two of the better guys in the baseball for me um and, and cedric and, and and georgie um you know gunner's going to steal bases so adam frazier smart base runner get a huge jump on one uh, but we like to be aggressive and we're going to be aggressive with the lead for sure did you deliberate did you deliberately hold them back in spring in, in spring training uh you know just to unleash them now yeah I didn't do it to unleash them now, but I didn't. (laughs) Okay. Now we go like, no, well, I I did. uh, I don't need Mateo to work on stolen base jumps in first few weeks of spring training, to be honest with you. Um, and Cedric either. And Cedric was going to the WBC. So, uh, I want him. i wanted these guys to break healthy the last week. They just didn't have opportunities really the last like seven to 10 days. Um, But, yeah, the main focus was to have Mateo and Mullins be healthy for opening day.
1: Well, it's a good thing that the Orioles' offense on Thursday afternoon was as good as the offense was because their run prevention uh, was not so good. Now, the weather conditions were not great. 38 degrees was your temperature at Fenway Park. Uh, Kyle Gibson was the Orioles' opening day starter. He, in his regular season Orioles' debut, uh, allowed four runs in five innings. He gave up six hits, a triple, a double, and four singles. He issued a walk, and a hit-by-pitch. Recorded three strikeouts. Did throw a good bit of strikes. uh, 79 pitches, 53 strikes versus 26 balls. Uh, The Orioles' bullpen had problems. The O's allowed five runs over the eighth and ninth innings. Uh, Brian Baker and Felix Batista combined to allow five runs, four earned in one and two-thirds innings. Also, the O's committed two errors, but the O's did win, and their franchise catcher was the number one reason. Next up for the O's, off day on Friday and then the rest of the series, game two at the Red Sox Saturday afternoon at 410. Dean Kramer will be the Orioles starting pitcher and game three at the Red Sox Sunday afternoon at 135. Cole Irvin will be the Orioles
4: starting pitcher.
1: Well, another blow to our Capitals fading postseason hopes, a 5-1 loss at the Tampa Bay Lightning on Thursday night. The Caps were down 2-1 entering the third period, but then lost that third period 3-0. Uh, the Caps now are just 12-20-3 since they're 22-13-6 and starred, 34-33-9 overall. 77 points, now seven points behind the Pittsburgh Penguins for the Eastern Conference's second and final card spot. Uh, the Caps are sixth, in the Eastern Conference's wild card standings, and the Caps have just six regular season games left. Uh, time continues to run out for the Caps, who on Thursday night suffered yet another injury in uh, what has been an injury plague season. Winger TJ Oshie is hurt again. He left the game due to an upper body injury. Boy, he has had a hard time staying healthy in recent years. Uh, the Caps remained without winger Sonny Milano due to an upper body injury, uh, also remained without wingers Connor Brown and Carl Hagelin due to injury. Uh, bad night for Caps special teams. The Caps went 0-4 on the power play and just 1-2 on the penalty kill. Uh, bad night for the Caps in terms of quality chances. The Caps, per natural stat trick, had just seven five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Lightning's 16. Uh, tough night for Darcy Kemper. He was a Caps starting goaltender, but stopped just 29 of the 33 shots on goal that he faced. Uh, Winger Alex Ovechkin went pointless, totaled just two shots on goal and just three total shot attempts and finished with a game-worst tying plus-minus rating of minus three. Although Ovi also had a game-high 11 hits, a (laughs) sky-high number of hits for any player, especially a big-time goal scorer like Ovechkin. 11 hits. Man, I tell you, Alex Ovechkin's physicality really is something. Uh, Winger Craig Smith, had the Caps' lone goal, a second-period even-strength goal. Uh, Also, Smith had a game-high tying four shots on goal, and Smith finished number one on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick at 57.89. The Caps with Smith on the ice in five-on-five situations in the game, 11 shot attempts versus allowing eight shot attempts. But at this point, it feels like we are just waiting for the inevitable Uh, And that is the Caps being eliminated from postseason contention. The Caps have made the Stanley Cup playoffs in each of the last eight seasons and in 14 of the last 15 seasons. But this season very much looking like a non-playoff season, especially considering the Caps' sell-off prior to the NHL trade deadline on March 3rd. Next up for the Caps, home to the New York Rangers, Sunday afternoon at 1. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the AlGaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 541. We'll have a lot for you on the commanders and on the rest of our Washington, D.C. area sports weekend. The Capitals have one game this weekend home to the New York Rangers Sunday afternoon at one. The Wizards have two games this weekend home to the Orlando Magic Friday night at seven and at the New York Knicks Sunday evening at six. The Nationals have two more games in the team's regular season opening series against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park and the Orioles have two more games in the team's regular season opening series at the Boston Red Sox. Have a great weekend and I'll talk to you on Monday.
2: From my experience, just because of my, you know, three years there, um, it, it I, I didn't necessarily see that coming. Um, but in general, people have different reasons to do whatever. Um, uh, I'm not going to pretend to know everything that's going on there. I'm just more looking at the fact that, wow, the organization's worth that much, and you know, I couldn't get free coffee.